Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis at the corner of Nicollet Mall and 12th Street. I am Donald Meisel, moderator of the forum and minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation. In an effort to be true to who we are and as a service to the local and larger community, we host these forums in an effort to view the key issues facing our society from an ethical perspective. Realizing that there are no easy or simple answers, we bring people to the city and this podium whom we dare to hope can help us sort things out. We come at the agenda not from any particular bias, except the bias that we do care, and that while it might be safer to steer clear, it is more faithful to engage. The issue today is hunger. Hunger, an issue that haunts us, puzzles us, challenges us. Our theme, hunger and famine, is it a way of life? And our speaker, Philip Boffey. Philip Boffey. Mr. Boffey is a graduate of Phillips Exeter Academy and Harvard University, class of 1958. After graduating from college, he served as a junior officer aboard an aircraft carrier and then entered journalism, the career he has followed ever since. In 1977, 77, Mr. Boffey joined the New York Times as an editorial writer, specializing in issues involving science, technology, and medicine. He is currently the science policy correspondent in the Washington Bureau. He recently visited relief camps in Ethiopia and examined the medical effects of the chemical accident in Bhopal, Bhopal, India. He is president of the National Association of Science Writers. He is well qualified to address us on the very key issue, hunger and famine. Is it a way of life? Mr. Boffey, we welcome you here today. Let me help you with this. Thank you for the welcome. I feel like I'm a, uh, addressing a topic that uh, virtually everyone in the country is, is a quasi-expert in. There's been so much on television, so much in the papers in recent months, that uh, it's uh, a, a bit like uh, the Civil War, say, where, where experts in the field, and I don't pretend to be an expert in this field, but experts in Civil War history quail in terror whenever they give speeches because there are so many amateur experts out there who know as much or more about it uh, as they do. So I am addressing you here as a, as a professional layman, so to speak, who, who has looked at some of these issues the way you might look at them, and perhaps has looked at them uh, less thoroughly than some of the people in the audience, for all I know. But I regard my mission here today as trying to, 
to make some sense out of the welter of images that have passed across your television screens in, in past months, perhaps trying to, to sketch the overall dimensions of the problem, how well we've done in, in coping with famine in Africa, what the causes of it are, what the long-term solutions might be, and uh, maybe by the end of uh, uh, muddling through this together, we'll, we'll each have a slightly better understanding than we started out with. There are lots of different ways to try to, to get a uh, handle on how serious the problem there is. One is statistical, but all the ways I'm going to cite will, will show you how awful it is, but, but one initial way to get at the problem is statistical. You'll often see statements in reports or in the press that 150 million people in the African continent are at risk of starvation. That is a number that apply, that appears to be the populations of the country, countries which are seriously affected, but is not really the, the that's far, far above the actual number of people in dire straits. The United Nations has come up with what appears to be a pretty good estimate of the number severely affected by famine in Africa, and that's in the neighborhood of 30 million people, they think. Uh, that means that those people are reliant on outside food aid from the international donor community to keep themselves going. A another uh, rather alarming statistic to me is the number of people that have been driven out of their homes by uh, lack of food there. Some 10 million people in Africa an enormous uh, herd of, uh, of refugees or displaced persons or whatever you want to call them have been forced to migrate to new areas, to either to feeding camps or to new areas to try to uh, find new sources of food. Uh, it, it's just mind-boggling, that number of people in constant movement across the uh, African continent. It's almost impossible to find out how many people have died because of the, of the drought. There are no good estimates. Last week, in preparation for coming here, I called uh, people like the UN and the House Select Committee on Hunger. The best anybody could come up with was, was a wild guess that it's in the neighborhood of one million people dead of starvation uh, over, since the beginning of 1983. Um, that's an awful lot of people. Uh, I, I gather roughly half of the metropolitan uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul area, uh, for example, just wiped out in the course of uh, a couple of years. Another way to measure the, uh, the problem is uh, geographical, geographical extent. If you look at the disaster maps that the UN puts out, there are great swatches of, of affected areas. A typical UN disaster map will have uh, areas in black that are the most critically affected. And you'll see a black band going across the entire uh, continent just below the Sahara Desert, the so-called countries of the Sahel. You'll see another black band in southern Africa, uh, primarily Mozambique, Angola, and you'll see a lesser affected area on the eastern coast of Africa. But the visual impact of looking at the, uh, at the shadings uh, makes you realize that we're talking about an area uh, a couple of times at least as large as the United States uh, geographically. Perhaps the most human way of getting at it is just to think of some of the images one sees when one goes into Africa. Uh, the scenes you see on television are essentially accurate. I, I was surprised when I went to Ethiopia by the feeling, uh, when I went to the feeding camps there, that I'd seen it all already, and I had. Uh, television is an amazing instrument 
in, con in conveying right into your living rooms the reality of what's going on. It, it may actually make things look half a step worse than they are in the sense that the television will focus on the worst cases in the feeding camps. But still, if you go to the worst areas where they're feeding the most critical cases, you will see incredible scenes of deprivation. I, I saw one 11-year-old uh, one uh, boy who was held up for me by a doctor who looked basically like a, uh, he was so limp and so thin, he looked like a, a puppet that, that couldn't move on his own. The doctor told a group of journalists and Red Cross people there that this 11-year-old boy weighed the equivalent of about 15 pounds. Now, we all found that impossible to believe, and none of us dared to report it in our papers because we thought there might be a language problem, but, because 15 pounds seems ridiculously little, little weight. But, but visually, in our guts, uh, we, we figured that it couldn't be too far off. Uh, you, you see reports coming out of Chad. Uh, New York Times has carried some reports of how people are digging up anthills to get at the grains of food that the ants carry into their nests. Uh, that is a measure of desperation. When I went to the feeding camp at Bati in, in Ethiopia, they gave us a nice little talk on uh, uh, the numbers of people they had working in various capacities there. They had three doctors, six nurses, and 32 grave diggers. That seemed to me to, to uh, rather graphically say where the manpower was needed there. The problem is far worse than anything in this country uh, as com the, the, than we can even imagine in this country. A recent report came out on hunger in America, which has gotten a lot of publicity lately. A physicians group uh, based at the Harvard School of Public Health uh, did some statistical analyses, uh, perhaps a little questionable, but uh, came up with an estimate that maybe 20 million, uh, hungry pe there are 20 million hungry people in this country. But what, whatever the merit of their statistical analysis, even if you accepted a total face value, they were talking about people who run out of food stamps at the end of the month, run out of money at the end of the month, and go a few days without food. Uh, it was nothing like uh, people who have, who have subsisted on 700 to uh, 1,000 calories a day for weeks and weeks at a time, as I was told by many doctors in Ethiopia was the case there. Oddly enough, bad as this, this famine is, it is by no means the worst either in African history or in world history. Ethiopia, back in the 1890s, experienced a famine which, according to the leading Ethiopian historian, leading historian of Ethiopia, uh, wiped out roughly one-third of the people then living there, i.e. 5 million out of 15 million people. I mean, that in the one country of Ethiopia is, is far more than have been wiped out uh, uh, by the current famine. I don't want to belittle the current famine, but it shows you the recurring problems in Africa. This is, this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, the main reason I think that we're, we're doing better in the current times is simply the relief efforts and the, and the medical efforts which prevent as much disease occurring after people get weakened by malnutrition. Uh, the historian I, I talked to, a, a man named Richard Pankhurst, uh, said that to him that was the, the most significant occurrence in the past century was the ability to stop the raging epidemics of smallpox, typhus, um, measles, uh, 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 cholera, other diseases which typically uh, uh, 
attack a weakened uh, population and do as much or more damage uh, as, as food deprivation. The worst of all famines, oddly enough, and this is a, a testament to the, uh, the power of, uh, of media attention, the, the worst of all famines in recent decades occurred virtually unnoticed in China. Uh, a demographic report came out in December which uh, deduced that some 30 million people in China had, been, uh, had died as a result of a famine there in the 1958 to 61 period. But China at that time was a country which uh, was isolated from the world, was, was unaware to a certain extent of its own problem, was unwilling to advertise and ask for help in solving the problem, and there were no TV networks there. Uh, it's just an absolute incredible, devastating experience which scholars are only now catching up with. Uh, the lesson I draw out of that is uh, thank God for, for relatively more open societies and for uh, uh, televised horror stories that get us all thinking about what to do in Africa. The causes of the famine are so, there's such a multitude of them, it's hard to know where to begin. I mean, you, you reach the point where you, where you start realizing that the causes are everywhere in Africa. I mean, Africa has so many problems. The, the obvious proximate one is the drought, which is the worst in 150 years, uh, the, since uh, an, an equally bad or worse one in the 1820s to 1840s period. Uh, and the last two years have been, been the driest two years in, uh, in this century in most of Africa. So that clearly has stressed uh, the, the, the continent's carrying capacity uh, to the breaking point. But it's not the only uh, cause or even the most important cause. One way to look at Africa is that drought has been occurring for 12,000 years there on regular, not predictable, but on, on regular cycles in you know, 30, 50, 70 year periods, you get awful droughts. And uh, you then have to sort of accept that as it's going to happen and worry about uh, other contributing causes. One is civil strife. Most of these countries have so much uh, uh, internal uh, uh, fighting between tribes and factions and parties that uh, they divert their energies to uh, clobbering each other and they disrupt the uh, distribution of food. That happens everywhere from Ethiopia to Mozambique to Sudan to uh, Chad and, and, and almost any place you look. Another major contributor in Africa is, is pests, uh, uh, insects that, uh, that destroy the uh, small food supplies that are there. This doesn't get a lot of attention in the, in the press, but I was amazed uh, on my visit to Ethiopia, went to one very uh, hard hit area of the country, and two, two different government administrators and aid officials uh, told me that something like 75% of the previous year's wheat crop had been eaten up by the, uh, a pest called the army worm. Well, they just simply didn't have the, uh, the know-how and pesticides available to cope with it. So uh, in, a, in, a, in a country already desperate for food, most of the food was going to an insect or a worm. Uh, perhaps the major driving factor in a lot of this is population growth. For the past 20 years, uh, Africa is the one uh, continent in the, in the world where per capita food production has declined. And the chief reason is not that food production has declined, except for the recent couple of years uh, with the drought problem. 
food production has actually increased slightly in most of sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, certainly on a continent-wide basis, the statistics showed that, but population has increased even faster, so they're losing ground. Uh, the, uh, Africa was actually essentially self-sufficient in food as recently as 15 or 20 years ago. The, the existence of, of these fast-growing populations uh, stresses all sorts of things. It pushes people onto marginal lands that can barely support them in good times, and then when drought hits, can't support them at all. It leads them to uh, overstress uh, far, uh, forest products, for instance. In Ethiopia, the, uh, the forests have been leveled in many areas of the country. Uh, I, I, I saw regions where it looked, from the road, you, if you asked yourself, where can I gather enough food, I mean, enough wood to build a fire, you would say, uh, you, you couldn't see how you could do it. You would assume you'd have to walk inland, maybe, you know, uh, several miles to find something standing. It's as if a, a group had picked over a picnic ground and cleaned it up. I mean, it's very hard to find a twig in some areas. As a result, when people get driven out of their villages by lack of food, they often will totally dismantle uh, a wooden hut or structure that they're living in. Why? So they can carry the wood with them to build fires with. They know that along the way, they may not find any. The, a, the, uh, the African nations themselves quite rightly point out that some of their problem is an external problem, uh, i.e., the world economy is, is currently acting against their interests. That is, the prices for many of the export crops, uh, the cash exports crops like coffee, tea, and the like, have in recent years been going relatively downward. Meanwhile, the prices for importing oil, which uh, most or all of the countries need, other than Nigeria, and then the price for importing food when, when they go on the market to buy their own food, those things have been going up. And this is largely beyond their control. So, so if you talk to an African leader about why are you in this mess, part of their explanation is it, it's you and the outside world doing it, and there's not much we can do about that. And there's some truth in that. However, a lot of it is also, it has to fall on the, on the shoulders of uh, the African governments themselves, which have a range of policies that many experts think are causing much of the problem. That is, they typically favor, uh, they administer price structures so that they favor uh, consumers in the big cities, which are the support of most of the regimes that are in power, and kind of downgrade the importance of the farmer. So there are taxes, harsh taxes on the farmers in some countries. There are uh, low prices for farm goods. Therefore, not much incentive for the, the, the farmer who's a subsistence farmer to begin with to do much in the way of producing extra food. The lack of infrastructure in Africa is almost unbelievable. There, the, the roads in many countries are... Excuse me. The roads in many countries are... Uh, almost non-existent. Uh, excuse me with this technology here while I get myself hooked up again. I think I'll just hold it. Yeah. Okay, well, while I'm getting hooked up by uh, 
by the management here, I'll, I'll, I'll pass on <laughs> to the, uh, the next portion of, uh, of topic here. There are a number of other causes I, I could uh, rattle off, but, uh, and, I'll, and I'll just rattle them off to give you some flavor, but uh, I don't want to spend too, I, I could go on forever about the roots of, of, this, of this problem. Uh, one is lack of trained manpower. I mean, uh, the, as a result of the colonial experience uh, where, where Europeans essentially ran the continent, uh, there, there's a great dearth of trained scientists, trained administrators, very few people that you can call upon to, uh, to administer the country and devise new policies and the like. Uh, farming is incredibly backward in most of these uh, countries, uh, uh, by Western standards anyway. Uh, very little use of things like fertilizer or pesticides uh, or new hybrid varieties of uh, of uh, plants and crops that would uh, would yield uh, would return higher yields, things of that sort. Question now is how well we're doing in coping with this crisis. Uh, I made a number of calls last week just to, to get the latest, mainly to the UN and to the congressional committees, to get the latest feel for whether we're we're catching up with, staying ahead of, or what uh, the emergency. Uh, food problem. And the basic, the consensus seemed to be that the emergency food needs, feeding the starving people kind of problem, is essentially under control, although precariously so. Back in March, the United Nations had a, had a conference of all the potential donor nations of food. And at the end of it, uh, Bradford Morris, the uh, UN official in charge of, uh, of, of coordinating these kinds of international shipments, concluded that he had identified most, if not all, of the food supplies that would be needed through the, the rest of this year. That doesn't mean they're necessarily going to get there on time. I mean, there are problems of uh, shipping, distributing, that kind of thing. But nevertheless, uh, it was a mildly optimistic assessment that the, that the response from international donors, the United States, Western Europe and even such impoverished countries as Bangladesh uh, will in toto meet the needs through the rest of the year. Um, private groups have been reporting enormous uh, success in raising funds. Uh, I saw one estimate, uh, which I meant to double check because it seems so enormously high, but one estimate that more than $100 million had been raised by the private voluntary organizations in this country through their fundraising efforts. If so, I mean, that, that is a, a, a monumental achievement. There's also some hope that the, aside from the international shipments of grain, that the, the internal growing of crops will be a little better in some areas this year. Uh, rains have come to some areas of the south and to Kenya and to a, a few selected areas in the north. And uh, the latest FAO report just out within the last week says that uh, uh, wheat crops, for instance, have been, uh, the latest uh, wheat crops were normal in Kenya, Burundi, Rwanda. They look pretty good in Tanzania. Um, I'm not saying the problem is over, but there's some hope that maybe the drought is beginning to, uh, to break. Where we're not doing so well 
is on the long-term problems. That is, it's one thing to feed desperately hungry people in a convulsive worldwide effort to meet, meet a, a short-term crisis. It's quite another to solve uh, all these long-term causal problems that I've been rattling off. One question that's often asked is, is there any hope of doing it? Or is, is Africa such a basket case that, it, that it, it's beyond redemption? Uh, I think the thing that gives me some hope is the knowledge that we were talking about other areas of the world the same way not too long ago, and they seem to have saved themselves. I'm thinking, for instance, of China. As I said, in, in 1958 to 61, 30 million people died from a famine there. Well, last year, China produced a surplus of food. Over the past two decades, and more particularly over the past few years, they've turned a chronic deficit situation into a, a modest surplus situation. The, uh, one of the top ch uh, Chinese science administrators came through Washington two weeks ago, and I was at a breakfast that he spoke at, and uh, took advantage of the opportunity to ask him uh, how well they were doing and what he thought the secrets were. And uh, he thought, A, they were doing quite well and were very pleased, and B, the secret was partially reorganizing the economic structure in the farming area so that there was more incentive for farmers to produce more, and secondarily, applying a lot of uh, modern methods uh, adopted from outside, uh, better fertilizers, better seeds, hybrid plants, and the like. Another, another country we almost wrote off a few uh, decades ago was India. I mean, how many, how many stories in television programs did I read about the hopeless population uh, growth there and uh, the enormous food deficits and a democracy could never cope with all these, uh, these terrible problems? Yet India is now self-sufficient essentially in food, uh, partly because of the so-called Green Revolution, which produced new varieties of high-yielding crops, a lot of inputs of uh, things like fertilizers and pesticides. I was told on my trip to India, for instance, by one international ec ec economist, that the use of pesticides alone in India probably saves something like, eight, probably feeds about 80 million people a year who would not otherwise be fed. That's because these crops would have been lost to the pests, either in the field or in storage bins. Well, imagine if that kind of thing had been available in that area of Ethiopia I went to where 75% of the crop was eaten up by army worms. I mean, it makes an enormous difference. Uh, and you don't have to drench the countryside with uh, toxic chemicals to do it. I mean, you can do it in, in a reasonably moderate way. I've seen estimates from the uh, Food and Agricultural Organization that, that something like 17 African countries, which would otherwise be totally unable to, uh, to feed their uh, populations with what the FAO calls an intermediate level of technology, i.e. Uh, new methods, fertilizers, pesticides, and the like, irrigation, could, could, be, could feed their projective populations by the year 2000. I mean, that's astonishing. I'm not sure it will happen, but it just shows you that there's potential there. I mean, there is so much potential for improvement in African agriculture that it is not a basket case if things are done. Well, what has to be done? Well, clearly population control has to be done. Don't ask me how. Uh, typically, uh, African countries are a little resistant to outside pressures. Our own government is resistant 
to, uh, to funding a lot of population control programs, but it seems to me something's got to be done to curb population or, or it's a hopeless task. Then uh, the African governments themselves have to do a lot to improve their own, own uh, internal situations. I mean, they have to start emphasizing the agricultural sector, which is the backbone of their problem. Uh, too, many, too many African countries hope to jump into the industrial age and have been concentrating on urban problems or building cement plants or the like, whereas most of the people live in the countryside and most of the food comes from the countryside. So if, if food is your main problem, you've got to reorient where you're aiming your, uh, your efforts. A lot can be done in research, is being done in research now, but, but nowhere near enough to, to make crops that are more resistant to drought, more resistant to pests, more, more high yielding in the African environment. Typically, our own agricultural research establishment does not work very hard on the problems that would be relevant to Africa because they're not relevant to us. Uh, some reorientation there, if there's some way to do it, would clearly, would cl clearly be a beneficial thing to Africa. One controversial solution is to run away from the problem by resettling people from devastated areas to other areas. That's going on in Ethiopia now on a large scale. When I was there, it was one convoy of something like 100 buses and trucks carrying 7,000 people, an enormous long convoy, trundling people from the uh, area around the capital down to more fertile lands, where the notion was they would be able to uh, start a new life and support themselves with government assistance. There are a lot of problems in the resettlement program, a lot of reasons to be nervous about it, which we can go into in the question and answer period if you want. But it, it's sort of a modern version of the traditional African way of coping with the, the problems of his environment. I mean, we've had nomadic populations from the beginning of time in Africa who, who when drought hits, move to another area. I'm a little dubious as to how well it's going to work when you have so many people around, but it is one way to try to cope. Well, there just has to be a lot more in the way of environmental programs in, in Africa. I mean, the areas that I saw denuded of forests, the badly eroded fields, uh, can all be improved and are being improved in small degree. Ethiopia has tree planting programs. It's got terracing programs to show farmers how to build terraces on the hillsides to prevent erosion. It's got uh, small-scale uh, extension programs to tell farmers, uh, you know, how to rotate crops, how, to, uh, how much fallow time they need between crops, things of that sort. But it's all very small-scale, nothing on, the, on uh, the size of effort needed for this truly uh, awesome problem. What can you do as an individual for, in all of this? Well, uh, I don't really know. I mean, this is a problem that, that individuals can't really solve. Uh, the, these are problems, pro you, 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 you can do a number of things, I guess. You can, you can push your, your political leaders to begin with. You do have a, a one or more congressmen from this state who are sitting in key positions, like on an agricultural committee or whatever. You can push people like that to start focusing on the long-term uh, development problems, not just the short-term emergency famine food problem. Uh, 
You can push your universities, maybe, to try to uh, work out uh, cooperative agreements with African universities, uh, uh, redirect some of their efforts, perhaps, toward African problems. Question is, where does the money come from for that? I don't know. But it would be nice if, if sort of the advanced world's expertise could be brought to bear on Africa's problems because the African university systems are quite weak. A uh, number of people are joining Peace Corps type operations. Uh, the, the Peace Corps has increased, or has said it will increase, the number of uh, volunteers it's sending over with agricultural expertise to work with small-scale farmers and uh, just try at the local level to, to work out uh, ways of improving food production. Uh, you can try to get involved uh, and contribute money toward the private organizations that have uh, long-term development projects going. I don't know, frankly, who all of them are, therefore I'm not even going to mention one of them, otherwise it'll seem like, I mean, I know one or two, but uh, a number of them are also deeply engaged in ways to, to, uh, to help the Africans help themselves over a 20 or 30 year time scale. But basically, this is a problem, I think, that has to be solved by national governments. Uh, national governments from outside, like ours, giving assistance. National governments inside, like the Africans, waking up to their problems and doing something about it. And I don't get the sense, either here or in my brief trip to Africa, that there's a lot of real commitment to the long-term problem. There's a lot of lip service to it, but everybody's so caught up in the immediate crisis that it's difficult to, uh, to, to get down to broader issues. So perhaps one legacy of the current crisis may be that it'll finally spur us to do something about these things. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Boffy. In the study, before we came down here and you were looking over your notes, you said, well, they uh, made sense to you. And uh, we agreed that they only make sense to us if they first made sense to you, and they make a great deal of sense. You, you delineated uh, very graphically the issue, the, the crisis. Uh, 30 million people severely affected, 10 million forced to move, a million dead since 83, 11-year-old child weighing 15 pounds, people digging into anthills to get grain. Good Lord. Uh, you told us how we're doing with the emergency and apparently making some progress. You took the, us on the longer look, what can be done overall and what we can do. So I think that's a very well-organized address to a, a severe and critical issue, and we thank you. We do take a few minutes now to permit those of you who must leave to do so. And we remind our radio audience that we've just had a, a very important address by one Philip Boffy, science policy correspondent for the New York Times, Washington Bureau. His theme, Hunger and Famine, Is It a Way of Life? This program, by the way, is originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. Questions are being passed forward, and we'll be filtering them up here momentarily. I have one or two uh, ready in advance, so let me begin, sir, to question, and if you'd return to the podium. 
some of the issues, you, you've addressed so many of the issues that it's hard to find questions that you haven't already spoken to in part, but do you see any changes that are going to be necessary in our lifestyle and habits in, uh, eventually to, in order to ensure food for everyone in our, in our world? How does this affect us and our lifestyle, if at all? Well, I, I'm, not sure that, I'm not sure that it does because the, the, there's, there's one big issue that I have ne never studied carefully and never quite understood the uh, economics of, and that's why in a country like this where we have enormous surpluses of food, our problem is overproduction, driving prices down, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And so we gather up these enormous surpluses, yet it seems to be, and I guess the reasons are in the way economies work or something, it seems to be impossible to ship all of these to areas of desperate need, if in fact shipping them would, would be a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know, for instance, if we were all to cut our caloric intake, as we should for health reasons, uh, and save the, uh, the uneaten food, whether, whether it could get to areas of need. I'm not, I'm not sure that would make a lot of difference. So I guess it's a long-winded way of saying, I'm not sure what difference our lifestyles make mm. in this problem. How do you feel about food being used as a weapon? Well, what people usually, mean, what people sometimes mean when they, I hate the idea of food being used as a weapon initially. That's the point one. But what, do you, what does one mean by food being used as a weapon? What, what they often mean in the Ethiopian context is the notion that the uh, government is deliberately not allowing food to get to areas where rebel forces operate, or conversely, you see this said less often, that, that, uh, that the rebels are interfering with uh, food supplies destined for the government feeding camps, and that, that too happens. Uh, the, uh, it just, it's just so inhumanitarian that, that how can one not be against it? Uh, uh, sometimes one also hears about food being used as a weapon diplomatically, <clears throat> as the United States, for instance, <clears throat> shipping food to, to countries for political, that are political allies. I mean, Egypt, I think, gets an enormous chunk of our food uh, and development aid, uh, primarily because they're a bastion of our policy in the Mideast, and, and, and uh, I'm all for that. But I would guess that if you do a graph of where our food aid goes, it correlates partly with which countries it's politically useful to help. On the other hand, we are giving food to Ethiopia and to Mozambique, two communist countries, which are opposed to us in many ways. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Are you aware of, uh, let's put it this way, what are the most effective ways of channeling uh, aid uh, to Africa, for instance? Are there some that are less effective and others that are more effective? What's the track record well, on that? No, the, uh, I, I've never tracked food all the way from, from say, the American farm field to the, uh, an African in a feeding camp who might eat it. Um, um, I, I, I've just always assumed that the logistics of it are, are being carried out essentially well by the uh, relief organizations and <clears throat> the governments that are doing it. Uh, I, the short answer is I don't know of any, I don't know if there's a more effective way than there is now. It's true that the international donor community got started late on this process. And it's true, I think, that in almost every famine situation, the donor community gets started late. It takes a while to, 
for people to realize the enormity of the situation, to get their act together, to get their red tape uh, out of the way. And, and somehow it just happens over and over again. There's got to be a better way, uh, but I don't know what it is. Thank you. Are there nutritional problems associated with the kind of food that we supply? Let me uh, back up and say that we have a doctor, Mrs. John Murray, in our congregation who go every summer to Africa and perform a medical mission, and they're doing a study of some problems that are created by some of the foods and the nutrition that, that is provided on this relief basis, and then people start having problems that they never had before. Have you? Are you aware of that issue at all? Um, I, I'm, I'm not deeply aware of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess my initial reaction is that uh, when you have desperately needy people, uh, the, the need is calories. And uh, mm -hmm. so you, you're, you're, your first problem is to get something into them. Uh, and I have seen arguments made oftentimes that uh, by changing the food habits of a country, that some, sometimes the, what, what donor countries have excess of or grow themselves and want to ship isn't necessarily what the, uh, the, the indigenous population is used to eating. Uh, I didn't see this as much of a problem in Ethiopia because I, it didn't seem to me that the indigenous foods were all that different from what was coming in. That is, Ethiopians eat a native form of wheat there's maize there. Uh, uh, so, you know, when you ship in wheat from uh, the West or from uh, Australia or wherever, um, it didn't seem all that different from what a lot of them were used to eating. I have been told that there are countries where, where people subsist on cassava or, or sorghum or things of that sort, and then they kind of get weaned onto uh, food from the West and then don't want to go back to the native foods, and it's an enormous problem. How do you switch back? Uh, I mean, you've, you've developed a taste that for something that's not normally there in the environment, and then what do you do? Um, but I, I don't know much about the nutritional impact. I, I guess the, the question implied maybe that, uh, that somehow it, it would change the health of the people, by, and I just don't know anything about that issue. Right. I think it's a, it's a long-term study that they're involved in in trying to see if there are ways to, to sort it out and be helpful. Has the UN offered any leadership in dealing with world hunger? Well, sure. The, the UN is certainly, uh, uh, I, I would say, a, a major, if not the major, current player in the sense that, as I mentioned, there was that, uh, that March conference that the UN held. Uh, mm -hmm. Where, where virtually any country that could conceivably have something to offer was invited. They all came and, and it was the, the prime coordinating mechanism for figuring out who could send what on what time schedule and that kind of thing. Um, the UN is also a forum for publicizing the need and uh, has a certain amount of, maybe a certain amount more credibility than individual nations might have. In uh, Plus I find the UN I find the UN a, a relatively useful source of, uh, of guidance on, on how things uh, individual nations do look to a slightly broader constituency. That is, um, for instance, you, you often hear the United States criticized as somehow not doing enough. And yet I've talked to a few UN officials who, who sort of, when you view it against what other people are doing, would give us pretty good marks. I mean, it's true the United States got started late. It's true the Reagan administration wasn't exactly leading the, 
the uh, effort. But the bottom line is, after all, after we got started, after the Reagan administration came out with its proposals and Congress upped them a bit, uh, the bottom line is we've been sending roughly 50% of the food to Africa that has been sent there and will continue to do so for the rest of this year. And that is roughly historically, according to the UN people I talked to, what the United States has been doing. And uh, I, I guess it's felt like an adequate response because uh, we are the, the largest in agricultural power. Uh, this ties in with something you've uh, already been speaking to. What has been the responses uh, for food and medical help from other countries other than the U.S., Japan, West Europe, uh, Russia, and East Europe, oil-rich Middle Eastern countries, uh, etc.? Well, the re I, I have a big chart, which I didn't, didn't bring up with me, which actually lists the contributions. As I say, we're, we're, we're the biggest single contributor. Western Europe has done quite a lot, including Italy. Italy uh, uh, came up with a very large uh, pledge at the latest UN meeting. Uh, I was surprised at how some of the impoverished countries of the world came up with modest, but uh, nevertheless, real contributions of, of foodstuffs. Uh, Sri Lanka, as I recall, was one. The Maldives, Bangladesh. I mean, Bangladesh, I've always thought of as a basket case, and here it's shipping food to African, starving Africans. Um, the Eastern Bloc countries have given some grain, I mean some food, grain I guess mainly, uh, and, and a lot of transportation. I mean in Ethiopia, I think sometimes we can, we in the West view things through a Western prism and I went over to Ethiopia thinking, well, the West is, uh, is shipping enormous amounts of food to this communist state and the uh, Soviet Union is uh, shipping them arms and, and this is awful because there's a Soviet client state, why the heck isn't the Soviet Union doing more? It, and there's still a legitimate question in some senses. But what I didn't realize until I got there and sat through a briefing where the Ethiopian Rehabilitation, Relief and Rehabilitation Commission was explaining to the Red Cross people that I was with and to a couple of reporters, their overall plan for getting, getting and distributing food. And I could see that it, the way they thought of it, they were getting sort of a co-equal contribution in the way of transportation equipment from the Soviet Union, East Germany, and other Eastern Bloc countries. That is, there were big charts on the walls as to which countries were pledging which food, then another chart on the other wall as to, as to where the vehicles were coming from to distribute this stuff. I mean, absolutely crucial part of the process. And, you know, the big cargo planes, the helicopters, the smaller fixed-wing aircraft, the trucks, all of that, not all of it, but the bulk of it was coming from the Eastern Bloc. And I, I could see that they sort of felt these were, you know, not, if not equal, at least somewhat commensurate contributions. And uh, whereas I had gone over there totally with our perspective of we're, we're doing all the good stuff, we're sending all the food, and what, what, are, the, what are the Ruskies doing? They're just sending some, some uh, military equipment. Mm -hmm. Another question from the audience. To what extent is the persistent famine condition a breeding ground for a world revolution of the have-nots against the haves? Well, uh, not being an expert on revolutions, I, I'm not sure, but I would guess uh, that it's not a breeding ground. I mean, Africa is very far away, very poor. Um, I mean, it's hard to view uh, any, th any revolutions that might occur there as a threat to the have nations. 
uh, in the short term. As I say, I'm not an expert in revolutions, though, but uh, I, I guess when I look at Africa, the thing that worries me more is not that, is not that we'll look at it and say, uh, oh my God, uh, this is crucial to our well-being. Uh, uh, let's head off the revolution by shipping food or whatever. Uh, I would more fear the other, the, the opposite thing, which is that we would look at Africa and say, boy, here is a uh, impoverished place with enormous problems, uh, a bottomless pit if we start trying to help. Uh, what good is it anyway to us? Uh, let's, let's ignore it. Uh, I mean, Africa, Africa is ignored in this country. I mean, if you go to the Congress and ask people what committees they want to serve on, the, uh, the African subcommittees of the Foreign Affairs Committee are not popular places. They're one of the last places you, you want to get stuck. It's not a hot issue in general. Uh, if you go to the Library of Congress and want to look up national documents uh, in their holdings, the you know, biggest, you know, most important library in the country, their African holdings are a joke. We, we don't pay attention to Africa. It, it, the problem is it's, it seems unimportant to us, and what we have to realize, I think, is that, the, that this is where the ethics of things come in. I mean, it's humanly important, even if it is not politically or economically important. Thank you. Uh, you may or may not wish to comment on this, but which organization is the best or which uh, are the best to contribute money to? And she, uh, the person lists care, World Vision, Aid to Othea, Ethiopia, Christian Children's Fund, etc. Are you aware of, the, of any that are particularly effective or more effective than others? Or? Well, I, you know, I'm totally unqualified mm -hmm. to, to judge. I, I spent time with one organization, the American Red Cross, which through the League of Red Cross Societies and the International Committee of the Red Cross runs a bunch of feeding camps in Ethiopia and a lot of other countries, about 14 countries, I think. Uh, I was impressed with their operation. Uh, I mean, the people you saw in the field were quite professional. I was impressed with their accounting. I mean, you often hear stories about, gee, the grains getting diverted and uh, not getting to the hungry and corruptions going on or it's going to feed the army or whatever. But, uh, but these are not, I mean, these are fairly savvy people and they know how many uh, bushels of grain are unloaded at the dock and then transferred to uh, government vehicles in Ethiopia to be taken to the feeding camps and they know how many arrive at the feeding camps and it doesn't take too great a mathematician to be able to figure out whether you've got all that you, that went in, it comes out at the other end or not. So I thought they were doing a professional job. I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of organizations are. I mean, Catholic Relief Services has as many or more camps in Ethiopia, I don't know about uh, Africa-wide, I'm sure there, there's just a lot of places, a lot of, a lot of groups over there that are, that are active and I don't know which ones are messing up and which ones are doing a superb job. I've only seen one in action. Okay. Question, several questions gather around this one. Is there any danger that sending our meager food assistance can give the people an artificial feeling of temporary well-being and an ensuing population increase, thereby uh, compounding the problem. Well, I don't know about well-being, but, but, but everybody, from the African governments to the relief officials to the donor nations, everybody worries about creating a perpetual soup line kind of situation. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, once you start gathering people in feeding camps, in great numbers, by the tens of thousands, and they're out of their original villages, no longer able to grow food back in their original villages, whatever, you've got a bunch of people who need to be taken care of. 
And uh, were it not that the crisis is so great, people would, people would not be doing this. I mean, it's the last thing you want to do is, is, is gather people in some central place where they can't support themselves and then give them food for sustained periods of time. So there is a danger. And everybody knows there's a danger. And everybody's trying to figure out how to avoid making it permanent. And, uh, you know, ask, ask me 10 years from now how successful they were. I don't know. Uh, this question, you did not mention cash cropping as a major cause of hunger. In southern Ethiopia, for example, thousands of acres of land, which were originally used to produce food for local residents, now produce coffee, chat, uh, hallucinogen, and sold in Europe through multinational corporations. Please comment on the role of these corporations. Well, what part of that you care to pick well, up? Well, um, we're again getting a little bit beyond things I, I know a lot about. Uh, yes, there's cash cropping. I mean, these countries need, they have other than food problems too, they need cash. <laughs> I mean, they've got a lot of things they need to spend money on. Yeah, here I'm exhorting them to build roads, right? Well, what do you build roads with? You've got to have some money to buy materials and trucks and pay people to build roads. So a lot of countries depend on cash crops to generate foreign exchange and generate income that they can then spend on, on whatever they want to spend it on, often the, the military establishment. Uh, so I'm not sure that cash cropping per se is a bad thing. I, and, I, and I have my doubts that it's a fundamental cause of, say, the famine in Ethiopia. Uh, the reason I say that is the existence of those cash crops in those areas of the country doesn't mean that there isn't also more fertile land down there that can be used to grow food for, for internal use because that, in fact, one of the things the Ethiopian government is doing is moving a lot of people down there from the, the truly distressed areas on the assumption that they can support themselves down there. So if, it's so if the cash crops weren't there, I'm not sure uh, how that would, whether that would greatly affect or not the internal situation because you've got the distribution problems, you've got the lack of financial incentive, you've got all those other problems I named would still be operating and somehow harming the food problem. Thank you. Another question. Do your references to the recent success of China and India provide any evidence that the most important solution is adequate rewards for individual initiative? Uh, the market economy, et cetera. Well, I know the Chinese say that that was important. I, I know a Chinese, the Chinese that I asked, the head of their, uh, <laughs> head of their science and technology board, who was in charge of agricultural research and things of that sort, claimed that was one of the major factors in China. Uh, the, uh, I guess when I look at, what I didn't tell you was the, the, the alarming thing. I look at China and India and say, wow, isn't that all encouraging? But the one thing they had going for them that Africa doesn't is uh, an enormous reservoir of trained people and a long tradition of central government being at least moderately effective so that we sit around and applaud the Chinese for bringing their population under control, but that was done with a fairly draconian centralized direction. And uh, si similarly, when you're, uh, when, when you're trying to have an agricultural extension program and get fertilizers and pesticides out into the countryside and all that, you need a big cadre of trained people. And India has one of the largest reservoirs of uh, scientists and engineers in the world. And you look at Africa and you think, wow, you know, that's decades before we're so maybe centuries before we're at that stage. Uh, 
Another questioner asks, how did the trip uh, to Ethiopia affect you emotionally and personally, if you care to reflect on that at all? Well, uh, you know, I have reflected on it, and I'm, I'm always embarrassed to say because I end up, um, I end up seeming callous. But, and, and I wasn't the only one on the trip that felt this way. We, we were not, we expected to be, a number of people that were with me from ABC News, for instance, and uh, some of the wire services, had expected to be intensely emotionally affected. And it was odd. It was because of the impact of television, I had already seen all the horrible things I was going to see. So, what, so you, you had already, in some sense, inured yourself slightly to it. And then, the situation was turning around slightly. I mean, I went to feeding camps where, yes, there were these people in awful shape, but there were also plenty of very happy, smiling kids who were, who were feeling great now. I mean, in some sense, some sense the feeding camps, once you're over the hump of, being, of starving to death, the feeding camps are a boon in one sense, and that is regular meals, clean water, uh, however inadequate the number of doctors and nurses are, they're there where they weren't back in the village. So in a lot of ways, a lot of the people you see uh, are very upbeat. I mean, you're just always surrounded by kids pressing, you know, wanting to shake your hand. And I think they, since I had a Red Cross bag, I was on a Red Cross trip, uh, I think they thought I was a doctor or something, but you, you, you saw an enormous number of upbeat things going on so that I was... I was a little surprised that I was not as, not as depressed as I expected to be. Well, allow me to <coughs> take a moment here and remind our radio audience that they've been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum or, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis, that our speaker, uh, having made a half-hour statement and then responding to questions, has been Philip Boffey, science policy correspondent for the New York Times Washington Bureau. His theme has been hunger and famine. Is it a way of life? A question that uh, uh, we continue to struggle with, uh, both before and following his address. Uh, it's, a, it's an open-ended question, obviously. Uh, sir, you have addressed this uh, in a no-nonsense, factual, straightforward, uh, caring manner, and you've helped us uh, face this issue in realistic ways. And, uh, we thank you for coming from Washington to do that with and for us. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. <laughs>